0: Well, good morning. It's, um, it's quite an extraordinary time as we gather in this kind of very unusual way. And uh, if you could see what I'm seeing, which is a great empty space with uh, a few wonderful faces behind in front of me there, but uh, we'll be speaking straight to you. And I hope uh, this very normal activity actually of going through the scriptures together, reflecting on what they say, I hope it will be a great blessing and a great help. We're praying to that end. In fact, let me let me pray to that now. Let, let me do that. Heavenly Father we do ask please that you might cause uh, this time uh, as we consider your word more closely to be a great help to us. Please strengthen us, deepen us in our walk with you, uh, grow us through even this extraordinary time but we do pray please for uh, great good to come in in these extraordinary times that you might work uh, wonderful things, things we could never imagine we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen. Well we were uh, going to go through Matthew's Gospel, we've been in Matthew's Gospel the last little while but, uh, and and it would have been wonderful to do that, there's a section there we're coming to about the uh, eternal life and how you find eternal life, very appropriate of course but we decided to deal directly with the current situation, things have changed so dramatically just in this last week, Uh, who could have anticipated, I mean who could have anticipated some months ago that we'd be in this place, Uh, quite a unique circumstance but Just in the last week, things have changed so much. We decided we would uh, focus directly on this particular issue. Now, for many of you, for many of us, it's it's not going to make uh, much stress in our lives. For the young, the very healthy, the financially secure, uh, for you, it's probably quite a novel time. Actually, you've. You don't have to do the commute anymore. You've got some more times for that early surf or late surf and your only problem is a lack of toilet paper. It's kind of not a great stress for many people. But for others, it is hugely serious and it is very worrying. Uh, If the estimates are correct, in a few months' time, we will see numbers of people go through an untimely death. Uh, That is a very serious, obviously, circumstance. But we'll see people lose their jobs We'll see uh, stress on finances, housing, and so on. Uh, it really is a very serious time and a time we need to take seriously. So, I want to engage into that question. Uh, how do we face the real prospect of suffering a- and cope with it? Actually, how do we face that prospect of suffering and not just cope but, but grow? Uh, do I say flourish um, in the midst of it all? Be strong? Well, to consider that, I want to take you to a sermon that was preached to a group of Christians 2,000 years ago. We have it recorded for us in the Bible. It's the book of Hebrews. And it's a sermon that was written to a group of people who were suffering. Now, for them, it wasn't a pandemic. Uh, You can actually see in chapter 10 uh, some hint of it all there, verse 32. Remember those earlier days you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. So here's a group of people who knew what suffering was, as many of those early Christians did, uh, and certainly Christians down through the centuries have known suffering. But did, did you notice there, verse 34, they joyfully except at the confiscation of your property. I mean, how do you do that? How how do you you go through this kind of time? How have Christians gone through it in the past? Have they not just coped, but actually grown, found joy, uh, been able to press through it with great strength? How do you do that? Um, Well, that's what I want to wrestle with you uh, with this passage. I want to go in three steps The first one is I want to take you to what I think is kind of the key section of this book to kind of really lay down the foundations. Then I want to step back and go a little bit earlier in the the book of the Hebrews and consider our need to be empowered. And Then I want to finish with a comment about love. So let's have a look at, I think the key passage there is chapter 12, the one that we had read for us. It is a reflection on the person of Jesus. So um, the author has told us to... Reflect on the fact that we've got a great cloud of witnesses, uh, which he's talked about in chapter 11. We'll come to that in a moment. Uh, Let us therefore throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's run the race with perseverance. But here it comes. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame... He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. There, there, is, there is a wonderfully extraordinary passage. And I want, to, I want you to notice firstly just one thought before we come to the key. The one thought that I want you to notice firstly is that He endured. Did you see there in verse 2? For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. You get it again in verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition. Um, just note that, the Lord Jesus endured, he suffered. I think it's important to recognise that because there is a popular sense in, uh, among uh, some around the place that... Um, Christians might be immune from suffering, that we might somehow be immune from a virus, that we might be able to kind of sail through life in some victorious way where we don't have to deal with these uh, hurts and pains and grief. Just remember Jesus, He suffered, He wasn't immune, He endured the cross. In fact, earlier in the letter in chapter 5, we're told that He learned obedience from what He suffered the one the great lord that we follow was one who was a man acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows Um, and as it was with him so it will be with all those that follow him in this world Um, there's a funny little uh recognition of this too in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul the great apostle left a man called Trophimus sick in Miletus Paul left a man sick in Miletus Uh, the, the apostle who had the gift of healing Um, He did heal, we see great evidences of him being able to do that, but not always. Christians aren't simply immune from suffering. The key though uh, to coping with potential suffering, so it it isn't to imagine we're immune, it it isn't to deny and ignore. Uh, Remember actually the Garden of Gethsemane with the Lord Jesus, he, the night before he was betrayed, Um, showed the great extent of his suffering he 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 wept he cried uh, with the grief and pain about to come upon him he endured he felt the pain of it Christians don't deal with suffering by ignoring it by by somehow being immune from it by uh, uh, avoiding it how do you deal with it how did they deal with it how did Jesus deal with it the key there is in verse verse 2 well for the joy set before him For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The the engine that empowered empowered his ability to deal with the the pain and the suffering that was to come, to not be undone by it, to, to find the courage and strength to go through it, the key to all of that was a hope that he had beyond this world. The joy set before him. His hope was set on an age to come, which I want to suggest was the shape of Jesus' life all the way through. He was someone who was constantly reflecting on the future, on the hope to come, the life that was his eventually. Uh, blessed are those who, are more, who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's an expectation of the future that comes. The Lord Jesus' life was shaped by constantly looking ahead, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He had a hope set on a future joy. A joy when, if you could unpack all of that, a joy when He would be reunited with His Father in a place of love forever, um, where there would be a great gathering of the forgiven, reconciled sinners um, brought around the throne of God where every tear will be wiped away, um, where there'll be no more death, mourning, crying or pain for the old order of things is gone. It's the joy of a new creation where all things will be made right, where every anticipation of joy now will be fulfilled in the future, where the glory to be revealed, says the Apostle, will make all that we've suffered now appear of no, as nothing, um, will be, it will overwhelm every loss and hurt and grief. For, for the joy set before Him, He was able to endure the cross... He was able to go through that. In fact, if you might um, turn back to chapter 10, you'll see almost the same idea repeated there in verse 34. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you, you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. Again, the future orientation. They saw ahead to what was to come now, perhaps another way of putting this, and I, and I want to try and kind of boil this down for us, perhaps another way to put this is the key to life, the key to Jesus' life, the key to the life of those early Christians was that their life's satisfaction, their life's meaning and purpose wasn't found in this life. And there it is. The key to Jesus' satisfaction, the key to his meaning, his purpose, wasn't found in this life. The key to those early Christians, the key to their life satisfaction, meaning and purpose, was not in this life. Now I say that repeatedly because it's such a radical concept. Do you know, uh, it's been said in recent years that the one culture least able to cope with widespread suffering is our current culture. Modern secular culture has been reported as the least able to cope with suffering. Now, you want to ask why that's the case? Why has that been identified? Why is that the lived experience of our current generation? Um, Why are we the least resilient? Why are we the least robust of cultures? Well, I suggest to you it's got to do with what is at the heart of secularism. Uh, to, To be secular, is to be someone who, um, who may believe there's something outside of this life but pays no heed to it. D- d- secularism is effectively about saying the life uh, that we pay attention to is the one we have now and if there is anything else it's of no account. It- it's-, it's the one that says the-, the only life that matters is this one we're in at present Which means, for the secularist, for the person who embraces this thought, the only way to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction, the key to meaning purpose and satisfaction, is with the things of this world, with life here and now. The the key for the secularist is that which can be found in this life. The, The secularist will need to latch on to something in this life for their satisfaction for their joy, for their security, for their meaning, for their purpose. They'll have to find the key to that here and now because this is the life. Um, It'll have to be family or it'll have to be work or it'll have to be hobbies or it'll have to be career, it'll have to be um, relationship, it'll have to be something here because this is all that we have. Now with that kind of view of life, which the vast majority of people today have, how do you cope when the things of this life are completely threatened? When when something flushes through into our experience which threatens everything in this life, what do you do when there's a kind of suffering that's so widespread and so all-encompassing that it touches everything so that you've now got nothing left secure that you can cling on to? You know, in the past, um, if you lost your job, the circumstances of life in our secular society was such that at least you still had your health. But what if you lose your job and your health? Well, at least I've still got my family, but what if this illness threatens my family? What if it threatens my ability to be involved in hobbies and habits? And Suddenly this virus, this tiny small thing, has come into our world and brought everything that looks stable and made it see, be clearly seen for what it is, Fragile. We have lived with a long time the illusion of control and it's easy to make it look like in an environment where we've had an illusion of control, it's easy to make it look like satisfaction genuinely can be located in life within the bounds of this experience. But now this one small virus has shown that the things of this world are totally fragile. There's actually nothing that won't be touched potentially by all of this experience. The Christian faith wonderfully does not locate its hope here. This is such a radical thought. Um, The Christian faith does not preach that here is where you find your best life. It doesn't say that life's great and this is the answer here. It owns the fact that this life is actually broken and fallen and fragile and vulnerable that there is no real place of substance that you can cling and build your life onto. It says there's nothing here that can carry the weight of your meaning and your purpose and your satisfaction. It can carry it for a moment, it can carry it for a time, but not, not ultimately. But it does say, and here's the glory of the Christian message, it does say there is a future that can carry the weight of your life. There is a God of the future that you can put your confidence in and know that though you lose everything here, you will never lose anything, ultimately. Do you see, Jesus? For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. He was empowered to go through the cross. Do you know the chapter just before chapter 12, chapter 12 uh, starts with the word therefore, therefore since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author perfecter who for the joy set before him. So this chapter 12 is summarizing in a sense what's just gone before and if you come back into chapter 11 you'll see this kind of concept Um, expanded or or given the groundwork of, so that chapter 12 has this powerful summary. But chapter 11, come back there to verse 1. Chapter 11 starts with a verse that seems like a definition of faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's one of those verses people kind of jump on and, you know, here's what faith is. I want to suggest to you, uh, it's not quite, it's not actually defining faith. Chapter eleven, verse one. It's not telling us what faith is in definition, because the definition of faith is actually something other than that. The definition of faith is trust. It's confidence. It's um, reliance. To have faith is to be someone who trusts in something, is confident in something. That's the definition of faith. So, what what is this verse saying? I want to suggest to you what it's saying is this is what faith does this is not a definition, he's not interested in defining the word at this point, he's saying this is what faith does for a person. What does faith do for a person? It gives you confidence in what you hope for. It gives you assurance about what you don't yet see. Faith is uh, like a telescope that um, uh, enables you in the present, to see into the future and bring the future so close that it's real for you. Faith in the promises of God about the future, faith in the promises and and the, the, the teaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus, faith in those words actually does something for you. It gives you confidence about what you hope for. It gives you assurance about what you don't see. In fact, an older translation, the King James translation, actually, I think, picks it up more literally. It says, faith gives substance to the things hoped for. It gives substance to them. That is to say, it it brings such a confidence in the words of God about the future, about the one who is faithful, God himself who promises so reliably, it gives you such confidence in those promises that it gives the future substance in your present experience. It makes it so real that you can taste the future. You can taste the joy that's to come. You can feel the substance and the strength and the power of it. Um, and so, therefore, you actually can have a power in your life to empower your life. And that's what chapter 11 is about. Chapter 11 is about a group of people who lived by faith and demonstrated what faith does for you. And look just at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. He was able to obey the word because he trusted the one who made the promise and the command. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise for they were looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith Sarah who was past childbearing was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Do Do you see Abraham... Abraham's looking forward, trusting the God who made promises about the future and so he was able to act with courage in the present. This is what faith does for people. Look at verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers in earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country uh, looking for a country of their own, one to come. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had the opportunity to go back. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly country. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for He's prepared a city for them. This, what faith does for you is that is that when you have confidence in the God who is faithful, who promises a future to come, a new creation, a restoration of all things a place where reconciliation with the Heavenly Fathers is established by His work for us. When, when, when everything is made new and there's glory in that future, faith and the promises of God about that future give it such substance now that I can taste it, it empowers and strengthens me, so that, so that if I lose everything, I've not lost anything. And so I can gladly with joy deal with the confiscation of all my property says the writer to these early christians Um, this is radical deeply radical i mean how do you get there actually well one of the keys is to look to the resurrection Um, how, how do i know that there is this future reality well god in his grace has made it very evident to us in the death and then resurrection of jesus so that in history We can see that there is substance to these promises. There is a new age to come. There's the first point I want to make. What, What is the key to coping with suffering? What is the key to coping with the potential loss of everything? Well, the key is looking to Jesus who set his eyes on the future. To look to him who now is the raised, risen Lord of the future who has established an age for us to come into so that we can have the joy that He had set before us. And for that joy, cope with whatever comes. There's the first point. The key is a future hope and the substance of it. Let me give you the second one much more quickly. The second and third go much more quickly. The, The second point is this. This insight that the key to life is locating your satisfaction, your hope, your meaning, your purpose in a future reality, the key to life is finding your satisfaction there, that key is not easy to get hold of or keep hold of in the world we live in. You you take a step back with me now to chapter 10 and you'll see this reflected for us. Have a look at verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Do you see the, the, the writer is now is saying the same, preparing for those ideas again of we have a hope, let's hold on to it, um, remembering the one who gave us that hope is faithful, we can trust him. Look at verse twenty four. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What you have here in this book is, is an author, a preacher speaking to his, his congregation, his community, saying to them, it's going to be hard, you're going to go through tough times. Hold on to this hope because it's the key. Locate your life satisfaction in the future hope, not here. But the key to doing that is each other, is actually encouraging each other. And for them, verse 25, it was to ensure they kept meeting together to keep encouraging each other in these things because this idea is so radical, it's so at odds with the community around us, with secular thinking with popular thinking that to keep our focus not here but on an age and a world to come we need each other to do it we need each other to to speak words to us that the truth of the word in my own heart about that future needs to be spoken by a friend a brother someone else who can verbalize it to give it substance again for me that there is a future hope to live for God has given us a great gift in each other. You know, this uh, earlier part of the book, uh, come back to chapter 2. We're not going to go through the whole book, but let me just show you chapter 2 um, and chapter 3. Verse 1, we must pay more, the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. There is such a potential for drift. Drifting from... Locating my satisfaction in a life that I can't yet see. Locating my meaning, purpose and hope in an age to come that I only have by faith, by the promises of God that's there. Uh, locating my hope in the joy set before me is something that's hard to do in a world that I live in. And we must therefore pay more careful attention so we don't drift. The potential to drift is great. Have a look at chapter 3 verse 13. Chapter 3 verse 13 encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened encouraging one another daily the the the, the, the preacher's trying to say, this is so important it's so at odds with the culture you live in It's so radical in its concept that you need each other to encourage each other, to press in, to keep hold of this truth, to keep this joy set before you, to not drift into a secular kind of thinking, Um, encourage each other daily. Um, Now, it's not because the idea is hard, it's because it is so different and we find the visible so captivating that we need constant encouragement to not drop our gaze to the world and be captured by the world. We need constant encouragement there. You know, the Lord certainly has this time in hand. He is sovereign, we trust in Him in the midst of this. But I do want us to be very aware that we have lost something quite precious. In the inability to be able to gather as a, a, a body of people where we can rub shoulders with each other, not just elbows, where we can actually come together and and, um, talk to each other in a physical way, the loss of that is great. It can be replaced by the wonders of technology. There's so much that can be done and we're so grateful for the work that people are doing around us to make all of this work. But it's no real substitute to personally walking with each other. God has given us each other to encourage each other to not find our hope here but to keep the joy set before us to be captured by that do not underestimate the dangers that we're in in the current context there's, there's there's health dangers we need to be prayerful about that and mindful of that but there are real spiritual dangers for us as we go through this time where we're limited in our ability to encourage each other that is of great concern now extraordinarily I think our God has got great things for us in it. God does work all things together for good and so we can have great confidence that He will have even good in the midst of this but but here's my thought, I think the good that He has for us will only come to us because we take even greater heed to our need. Because we take even greater heed to an awareness of what we've lost that we might therefore pay greater attention to our need to um, compensate pay attention to support pay attention to encouraging each other this will bring great good into our lives but only because each of us realize there's now no easy support that we once had we now need each other to take heed to ourselves we need each of us to take heed to each other, to encourage and speak the things of Christ to each other. And here's the thing, if that happens amongst us, if, if we do, in a sense, step up to this and speak of the things of Christ and realise we need more readily to speak of the things and of the hope to come, if we do this, I think it could be a truly powerful time. I think it could be a really wonderful time. As in homes, as, as parents, as fathers take responsibility for speaking to their families. If um, friends support each other by phone call, email. As our growth group network, unable to meet readily as a physical community, but if our growth group networks take heed to each other and do the email, the phone, the Zoom, if we each step up into this, I think it could be a truly powerful time. And we are praying that God might work wonders during all of this. And if I could anticipate what they might be, I'll give you two. I've got one final point to come. But let me, if I could anticipate what the great things the Lord might do amongst us might be, the first one is this, that the world would be shaken. It could be a wonderful time where we've just had fire, we've had flood, we've now got a virus. Um, Is not the Lord saying something to his world? Isn't he seeking to, to shake the world and say, the world does not have the answers. Do not locate your hope for satisfaction in life here. Don't locate your meaning and purpose in the things of this life. The, the Lord God is surely at the moment shaking us from that to say, there is a far more solid place to find your hope. And it's in the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father who for the joy set before him endured the cross. One of the wonderful things that could happen during this time is that the world could be shaken from thinking it has the answers. And I want to offer that if you are tuning in this morning and um, perhaps haven't thought a great deal about these things, I do want to encourage you to let this destabilise you, let this seep in. Let the fears and uncertainties that it's, that's coming with it all, don't brush them aside. Use it as a time to reflect on where your hope is found. Where do you locate your security? What is it about... What is it that the thing you're looking for to find satisfaction? Let this stir you to think further about that. There is a great place to find it. It's in the Lord Jesus and the hope that He has for us in the future. One of the other things we anticipate that could be wonderful about this time that Christians might be stirred to take even greater care to themselves and each other. The ordinary grace of gathering together is gone. So pray God we make the most of what we do have. Build habits to ensure that you do gather on a Sunday. Build habits through the week to gather with people in whatever form you can. Uh, build habits of Bible reading and prayer. Um, The Lord would use this time in our lives to transform and change us, to shake us. Let me come to the last point, to the first point, the key. The key is finding your hope, satisfaction, meaning, purpose, not in this life but in the life to come, the hope before us, the joy set before us like the Lord Jesus did, that's the key. The second thing is we need support, in living with this key, in being captured by this key because the world around us is so captivating. Let me give you the third and last point. Which as all of this seeps into our lives, it will change us to be people of love. It will change us to be people of love. Where we can love without being tied down by fear. Where we can love without fearing the loss of our health because we cannot lose. Where we can love without the fear of loss of property because we have nothing to lose. We have a future hope that means we'll never miss out. Let me finish with a um, comment from history. This is not the first pandemic to uh, strike our world. You'll probably be aware that there are many others down through time. And in the early years of church history, there was a very serious one in 250 AD Um, it's called the Cyprian time and um, during that time the church grew. Uh, Have you ever reflected on why? Well, here's one writer who spoke about that time and here's what he had to say. He said, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them, departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others and with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. How were they able to do that? Because they fixed their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. They were able to give themselves to love and service they weren't terrified they weren't afraid because they had a future hope that was so substantial because they had a God who promised who was faithful that their hope and their life was not grounded here it was located in the future a future that was so real it empowered them to live differently Brothers and sisters, um, this virus will fade. Pray God we come out of it changed. Pray God we come out of it safe. Some of us won't. But pray God we come out of it with a whole new outlook, where we let go of this worldliness, where we are captured and driven and compelled by the hope set before us that we might come out of it as people whose eyes are genuinely fixed on Jesus, who for the hope set before Him, endured great suffering. How about I pray? Our great God, we, we are conscious that You are the sovereign Lord, that You are ruling at the moment, at this time, as You are at every moment. And we're conscious... You have your hand on us through all of this. We do pray for safety, but we do pray for something deeper, that you might work in our lives, in our hearts, that you might cause each of us to to see how profoundly we need to be captured by a hope to come, that you might help us to locate our life's satisfaction, our life's meaning, our life's purpose, not in this life, but in the life to come that we might genuinely fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross and scorned its shame. Help us to be people who are strengthened during this time and help us as a church be a place and community of love that actually lives differently and is a great blessing to our world, we pray and we ask all of this in Jesus' name, Amen.